Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. RT has a piece entitled, A Nuclear Showdown? One of the greatest realist fears about the Russia-Ukraine conflict is actually groundless, and here's why. The U.S. will not intervene directly because it is not an existential crisis for Washington. It stands to lose little from Kiev's inevitable defeat. For insight into this, let's turn to our first guest. He's a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer. He's the author of Disarmament in the Time of Perestroika, Arms Control in the End of the Soviet Union. He served in the Soviet Union as an inspector implementing the INF Treaty. He was in General Schwarzkopf's staff during the Gulf War, and from 91 to 98, he was a U.N. weapons inspector, and he's the author of the piece. Scott Ritter, as always, Scott, welcome back. Well, thanks for having me. So you write, fears that the Ukraine conflict is now bogged down in some sort of stalemate which risks dangerous escalation from the parties involved in order to achieve victory are misplaced. There is only one victor in the Ukraine conflict, and that is Russia. Nothing can change this reality. Scott Ritter. No, I mean, this is good. Look, I have nothing but the highest respect for John Mearsheimer, uh, but I think he's being a little too unreal at this uh at this juncture, um, there is there is not a going on in Ukraine right now. And one of the things predicated upon this escalation is that Russia can't win, and therefore that will embolden the United States to intervene, um, and that will create conditions in which Russia may use nuclear weapons. Well, Russia is winning. The United States won't and can't intervene, and nuclear weapons are off the table. So I, this is why I take, you know, umbrage at, uh, at what Mr. Mearsheimer has written. Again, I have the highest respect for him, but I think in this case he is uh, a he's wrong on act, b he's wrong on his. Yeah, it's it's it seems to me when you look at it, I read that article too, and I you know just shook my head when I read it because it looks like basically he's been reading mainstream media stuff that's very very easy to debunk that there is some possibility. I mean, when you look at these astronomical numbers that Ukraine is losing on a day to day basis, it's simple. They're playing really. They're playing into Russia's hands. Russia said we want to destroy, demilitarize them. They're throwing all of their military stuff, and NATO's too, I might add, right into a grinder for Russia to smash it to pieces. Your thoughts? No, I mean, look, first of all, there's not going to be a NATO force deployed. There is no NATO force to deploy. Um, the United States, uh, you know, they put a core-level headquarters in place in Poland. A, the, core's not, the headquarters isn't fully deployed. B, a headquarters without troops is meaningless. C, uh, the troops we have on ground don't constitute a division, let alone a corps. And D, we don't have any troops that can flow in to beef this up. So it's purely a hypothetical. Uh, it's an academic exercise to speak of U.S. military intervention. Uh, if they did intervene, it would be using air power. And for the last 20 years, the United States 
has not faced um, any integrated air defense of any note. Um, our pilots don't train for this anymore. We don't train to operate in a heavy electronic warfare environment. And should we send our Air Force in to intervene, we would lose all of our airplanes instantaneously. Um, so it's, it's a hypothetical. And you know who knows this? The military. That's why they're not going to encourage the president to issue what would be tantamount to a suicide pact. You write, the key to understanding how Mersheimer got it so wrong is to dissect his understanding of the ambitions of both U.S. and Russia when it comes to the issue. According to Mersheimer, quote, since the war began, both Moscow and Washington have raised their ambitions significantly, and both are now deeply committed to winning the war and achieving formidable political aims. Scott, we've been following this fairly closely, I would say. And from the very beginning, I haven't heard the ambitions from Moscow changing at all. The ambitions that I have been paying attention to and that I have heard articulated from a number of spokespeople going all the way up to President Putin himself is, we're going to denazify the Ukraine we're going to stop this attack on the people in the East. And basically, as soon as Ukraine cries uncle, then we can go home and finish uh, and go on about our business. I haven't heard a change in ambitions being articulated from Moscow. Am I wrong? No, you're 100 percent correct. I mean, some things have changed. For instance, uh, Moscow's territorial demands on Ukraine as the price that will be paid for the sin of taking NATO weaponry and extending this conflict uh, is much higher. But it's not an it's not like Moscow, it's not like the Ukrainians are sitting back saying, we're going to recapture Crimea while they're retreating. Uh, This is Russia saying, oh yeah, by the way, that territory we just took, we're keeping, and the territory we're going to take next week, we're keeping, and the stuff we're going to take next month, we're keeping. Um, But that doesn't change the fundamental objective of Mm -hmm. denazification, demilitarization, and permanent neutrality. Meanwhile, the United States started by saying this this war uh, it will be over soon because Russia will collapse. They can't win. Uh, their economy will collapse under the weight of sanctions. Putin will be under pressure with the, to withdraw. Da, da, da. And then all of a sudden, oops, no. Oh, wait, maybe Ukraine's winning because of that, you know, the, the, the misunderstanding of what the Russians are doing. We're going to now give them weaponry. Uh, they're going to win. Ukraine is winning the war. Russia's defeated to oh, no, we got a little bit of a stalemate here, but our goal now is to prolong this war to bring pain and suffering to the Russians to, holy cow, the Ukrainians are losing, and we're not going to be able to reverse this. What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? The only side in panic is the United States. But again, as I said, their panic cannot manifest itself in military intervention simply because they lack the resources to intervene in a manner that, could produce victory. The United States military does not engage in wars that they don't think they can win. And there's not a single military general right now on active duty who thinks we can win against Russia in Ukraine. RT article, No Mercy for Killers of Russian Journalist Lavrov. The Russian foreign minister warned that retribution will come for everyone implicated in the murder of Daria Dugina. Moscow will show no mercy towards those responsible for the death of Daria Dugina. Russian foreign minister Sergei Lavrov has said, 
Ah, it sound, kind of sounds like a spy movie going on here. I think the people, I wouldn't want to be the people that were involved in any way, number one. And number two, I think they're going to find out that it ain't Novichok, the stuff that doesn't really kill anybody, that they're going to use. Your thoughts, Scott? No, I mean, first of all, let's start off with the, the reality that the uh, blacklist is, in fact, the kill list. Mm-hmm. All right. If you have thoughts, thoughts, philosophies, words that are found to be offensive by the Ukrainian regime, that is now a death sentence. Alexander Dugan was not a combatant. He wasn't a decision maker. He was a philosopher. Some people have embraced his philosophy to talk about the justification for Russia's military action in Ukraine. That's like me embracing Thomas Jefferson to explain why I want to run for student body president. Um, If you find that objective, you don't kill Jefferson. (laughs) You just simply vote me out. Dugan isn't a player. His daughter was not a player. She was an up and rising journalist, a nationalist man. But again, an innocent girl. She was killed on the orders of the Ukrainian government executed by the Ukrainian intelligence services. Um, the Russians know this. They have the proof. They know who did it. And there will be justice. And the justice will not be limited to the person who perpetrated the crime but all those involved in the decision chain. And this decision chain goes all the way up to the very top. So, um, yeah, I think, I think we're going to be seeing some, um, some decisive action in the uh, not-so-distant future. Slow pace of Ukraine operation meant to protect civilians. The Russian offensive in the neighboring state is going as planned, according to Defense Minister Shoigu. The Russian military campaign in Ukraine is progressing as intended. According to Shoigu, the relatively slow pace is the result of a conscious decision to protect civilian lives. Your thoughts, Scott Ritter? Yeah, I've, I've been saying this from the start, that uh, Russia has come in with, uh, you know, with the goal and objective of minimizing civilian casualties. Uh, the Ukrainian military, on the other hand, uh, is using their civilians as human shields. So when you combine those two, uh, what you get is more deliberation, a slower pace. Um, you know, and it, 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 you know the Russians know where the Ukrainian troops are, but we saw in the battle for Mariupol when the Azov regiment, uh, people who deserve to die, uh, used human shields in a building. The Russians instead would go into the building and evacuate these people under fire. Uh, before they took out the, 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 the Azov regiment, because they're not in the business of killing civilians. And so this requires more planning, more intelligence, more deliberation on the battlefield. Um, it slows down the pace of operations. But again, the Russians have made it clear, the clock is not driving this show. The, uh, the, the, the outcome is driving this show. They don't care about the clock. So people can call it a slow pace of operations. The Russians simply call it operation. Yeah, and and you've been saying this from the from the from the very beginning. Let me ask you this, Scott. We got a couple minutes left. After it looks like soon the Russians will have really, I mean, done what they need to do or what they intended to do in eastern Ukraine. The better part of Ukraine's army, and, and I don't mean just size, I mean in, in training, et cetera, is going to be gone. And they're going to have some pretty free runs to wherever they want to go. They will easily be able to cut off Odessa, et cetera. Um, what, what do you think comes next? And how do you think these types of things, the Dugina thing, these long-term attacks, stuff like that, affects their plans to move forward? 
I'll say I'll start by saying this. I believe that the Russian military and their civilian leadership are very mature, and they have not once lost sight of the big picture. Uh, they're not going to let um, you know Ukrainian actions such as attacking in the in, in Crimea, attacking Russia proper, uh, attacking uh, the daughter of Alexander Dugin, uh, distract him from this mission because to do so. Uh, creates outcomes that are unknowable. Right now, the Russians have a knowable outcome. Everything else that's occurring is a distraction from that knowable outcome, so they aren't going to uh, do what the Ukrainians want them to do, which is to overreact, divert resources, divert attention, create new political reality. Uh, they're going to stay focused on the job that they're doing, um, and, and that job isn't just about reducing civilian casualties, but also reducing the casualties of the Russian armed forces, which is why I believe this deliberate pace uh, will will be maintained even once they break through these defenses. Um, as I've said before, big arrow, big arrow combat uh, brings big arrow casualties. Uh, and once you get into a free willing conflict, Ukrainians uh, still retain lethality. As the you know the, the Germans in World War II proved this, even when they were on the run, uh, if the Russians overextended themselves, the Germans could pivot on a dime and inflict serious casualties. I don't think the Russians want that. So I think they're going to go very deliberately. They're going to be in control of every aspect of this operation. And again, it's going to be objective driven, not driven by the calendar. Scott Ritter, as always, really appreciate uh, your time and your analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Lee, and I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There's a very interesting piece in Asia Times entitled Confessions of a Disgruntled Chinese-American. Heaven help any aspiring leader who wants to correct America's problems at home and campaign on what the U.S. needs to fix. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's retired from a global advisory services firm where he advised clients on their China strategies and business operations. He was educated at MIT, Stevens Institute in Santa Clara University. He's the founder and former managing director of International Strategic Alliances, and he's the author of this piece. George Koo, as always, sir, welcome back. Hey, thank you, gentlemen. Nice to be with you. So you write, I'm proud to be an 84-year-old Chinese-American, proud of my Chinese heritage, and at one time proud to be an American. My friends frequently ask me why I'm so critical of our government. I tell them that as a citizen, I have a right and duty to criticize when I see my country heading in the wrong direction. It has not always been like this. George Koo. Right. Yeah. Well, hey. Thanks for uh, giving me a chance to 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 elaborate on my on my piece because frequently the criticism I get is why do you hate America so much? And I I try to answer try to explain to them that I don't hate America. I I'm blessed to be living in America and I grew up 
in what I consider to be the golden age of America. But what upsets me and bothers me is where America is going because of our leadership, because of our government. And where we are going doesn't bode very well for my grandkids and for, and, and for, for their kids if, if we're still around by then. And, and, and so I take the great pains to, um, you know, it, explain to hopefully to the American public that what's going on in Washington just is not going right, not going in, in, in our direction, in the direction that we should be heading and to engage in a, a lose-lose type of uh, adversarial relationship to, with China is not doing China any good, but it's doing even worse for ourselves. And I think you sent me a couple of articles uh, about embargoes and restrictions. And, and as we get into that, I think we'll show that we are indeed on a lose-lose trajectory. You know, I think when I look at this, the thing that really grabs at me from your article is at the top where you say this, heaven help any aspiring leader who wants to correct Americans' problems at home and campaign on what the U.S. needs to fix. Because a really period in my life when I, I don't know if I woke up or my politics, you know, changed or whatever was 2016, because at that point, you know, I was a big Bernie Sanders guy and I listened to Bernie Sanders and I thought, you know, strong safety net. That's the kind of, uh, he was the, the you know, uh, I, I looked at Bernie's history. I kind of knew this is what Bernie does believe in. And I thought, okay, you know, let me support this guy. This is as close as I'm going to come. And then I saw the whole machine turn on him. It's exactly what you said. Heaven help any aspiring leader who wants to correct Americans' problems. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it, uh, yeah, I'm Bernie Sanders aside, and I have to say, my grand, my grand, my granddaughter, uh, it was a fervent, fervent supporter, and uh, and worked on his campaign, but. You know, if you want to start out with an honorable reputation, with integrity, with telling the truth, and you come out and say, folks, we got to fix the, the mess that we are in. We got to do this. We got to do that. And I'm running on this platform. Nobody's going to write a check and support him. Mm-hmm. And, and, and no party will nominate him. And there's no chance that he will get elected. And in some in some situations, we already see that. We see some of the more competent, capable, thoughtful politicians in Washington have, that have opted to and, and say, hey, I, I don't want to have my hand out all the time begging for contribution. I'm out of here. I'm going to pick up a different career. Now, admittedly, <laughs> some of them Turn, turn the revolving door and become a powerful lobbyist and make scads of money that way. That's, that's kind of the way that our system works. And um, it, it's, you know, it's corrupted from top to bottom. And uh, I'm very discouraged as to how we're going to fix this. Uh, maybe, maybe you guys have a better idea. <laughs> uh, my idea was ask George Koo. But uh, 
This is a very, very uh, reflective piece. You talk about growing up in Seattle when you immigrated to the United States when you were 11. You were living your American dream, participated in exercising American democracy. But watching the 68 Chicago Convention on TV, you were appalled and outraged. To to me, that's a very interesting reference. Why that particular historic reference? Well, I guess... Innocent me, up to that point, I was I was living in in, in a blissful uh, state in a white American world. I really personally didn't feel. I mean, I did feel the sting of the Vietnam War, and I was a protester of the Vietnam War, which is why I supported Eugene McCarthy for the Democratic nomination. But you know, growing up in Seattle, I I live in a white area of Seattle, not a blue-collar white area, but I went to public schools. I did well enough to go to MIT. I never really felt, you know, uh, the, 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 the discrimination, the racial discrimination. And um, the, the Richard Daly machine really took a hit on me and, and struck me that, hey, you know, the political, the politics in this country is, is tilted. It's not being fair. But this is just the beginning. It's beginning of uh, awakening. Um, I, I really pointed out that you know I wrote a scathing letter to the editor, and to my surprise, Newark Evening News published it. And I and I said to myself, my goodness, you know, my opinion could make a difference. And that's how I got on this path of being a rabble rouser and write op-eds. Um, not not right away, but that's the beginning. Now. I have to say, um, the civil rights movement, I confess, kind of blew blew by me. I wasn't thinking about that. I was busy raising a family. And really, it wasn't until the Wen Ho Lee fiasco that showed how um, racially biased this country can be and how biased our FBI is uh, all along since J. Edgar Hoover. And, And then I became much more aware of uh, Martin Luther King and the black uh, civil rights uh, unrest and so on. But, you know, it, it's, um, it's a gradual turning. And as um, people responding to my piece, many of them are Chinese Americans like myself, they all seem to be saying, my God, those are the golden ages. America was so beautiful. Everything was so pretty. The highways were so great. The buildings are so beautiful. The, the parks and everything. And now it's all gone to hell. It's just it just become a two entirely two different world that we're seeing. And 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 I think that's one of the uh, the lessons that I was hoping to um, to point out to our politicians in uh, Washington. Let me read another selection from your article. Today, public figures of any and all stripes tell lies and do not even bat an eyelash. They violate every statute of the Constitution as if the laws of the land do not apply to them. There is no sense of honor and right or wrong or even a hint of shame. Your your thoughts? Well, I think that says it pretty much uh, says it all. You you, you folks, everybody in the audience are free to pick the politician of their choice and see if that fits the mold. And I submit um, you to be successful in Washington these days, 
you have to fit that mold. Uh, and, and again, you know, the, the honesty does not triumph, uh, unfortunately. U.S. adds seven Chinese aerospace and chip firms to export blacklist. This is from the uh, South China Morning Post. U.S. companies will need an export license to sell to seven Chinese state-affiliated firms in the aerospace and chip sector after Washington blacklisted them today for supporting China's efforts to modernize its military. Talk about that, particularly in the context of this whole supply chain problem, chips being one of the elements at the core of the problem. What do these sanctions say to you, this blacklist say to you? Well, two things. First of all, it's a little bit of the horse having already left the barn. Um, China is doing very well, thank you, in the space exploration area. They they have a Beidou that is a, a GPS system that's much better than ours. They have already landed on the other side of the moon. They're building their own space station. You know, um, what is it that we supply that they can do without? That's one question. Mm-hmm. The second question is we are, again, cutting our own nose despite our face. We're asking suppliers that could be selling a lot to China to stop selling. And I, th- I think I point out in one of the former pieces, one of our major Silicon Valley company. Lamb Research, which was which was founded by a Chinese American, by the way, he that company is a twenty billion dollar company. Thirty one percent of their business goes to China, and Washington is asking them to stop selling to China. Well, that practically is set, demanding that the company shut their door, and that will be I don't know how many thousands of employees that they employ in Silicon Valley and elsewhere around the world. But that has to be a self-inflicted injury if I ever seen one. And that's the same logic that we're asking here, that we're talking about. Yeah. And, and when we look at the U.S.-China trade war and, 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 the, and the, that Biden is, uh, Joe Biden is keeping the Trump-era tariffs on imports in place, the thing about that, I, th- I see, is, and I think it's important to understand, this doesn't hurt China. Yeah. The tariffs don't kick in until they get here. This is, a, this is a punishment of the American people after, let me add this, after these billionaires decided to move their businesses to China— and their labor to China so they can make more money, and now they're going to punish the American people for buying this stuff. Well, you know, this was obvious from day one. Um, Obviously, uh, Donald Trump hadn't taken Econ 101, but that's a different story. But there is a story here that most Americans, including you folks, I bet, didn't know about. And that is Catherine Tai, who is in charge of USDR. And she's the one that's been most vehemently insisting on keeping the tariffs in place, regardless of the damage that it's doing to the um, American consumer and economy. Well, there's a family history here that you folks probably don't know about. Her great-great-grandfather was the Chiang Kai-shek's right-hand man, the, the basically the um, secret police head of the secret police, he put away thousands of um, communist uh, underground agents. He you know assassinated and executed many many of these, and 
just after World War II, his plane mysteriously went down in a in the stormy weather and it was never fully explained. When the communists took over China, Catherine Tai's grandfather was caught and executed. Chiang Kai-shek was very upset. He sent his secret agents back into China and rescued a selected number of um, Dai Li. Dai Li was the, the, the henchman, uh, grand, grand, grandkids out of mainland into Taiwan, and Catherine Tai was born in Taiwan in that family. So there's an obvious conjecture whether her family history and the hatred for the Communist Party in, uh, in China has anything to do with her bias and her mm. insistence to stick it to the Chinese on, the, on this tariff trade war, regardless of what's right and what's good for us, the Americans. George Koo, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thanks, guys. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. President Biden has announced that he will cancel up to $10,000 in student debt for most borrowers and $20,000 for Pell recipients. He is also set to extend or has extended a pause on federal student loan payments through the 31st of December. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, former president of the National Economics Association, Dr. Linwood Tahid. As always, sir, welcome back. Thank you. So the president said that he will cancel up to $10,000 in student loan debt, double that amount for Pell Grant recipients, and that the forgiveness is expected to apply to Americans earning under $125,000 per year, $250,000 per year for married couples who file taxes jointly. And the White House estimates that 90% of the relief will go to people earning less than $75,000. What say you, Dr. Linwood Tahid? Well, I guess we can look at this as a glass one-fifth full or four-fifths empty. I mean, everyone else uh, of, of, on the progressive side was looking for at least a $50,000 forgiveness, including the NAACP, mm-hmm. which is not known for its necessarily uh, left-leaning politics. Uh, but, you know, $10,000, people are saying, is better than nothing. But it's, for, for, for many borrowers, it's pretty close to nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, 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 the median uh, amount owed, average amount owed is $37,000. So it'll still leave those borrowers, the average borrower, with, with um, um, uh, $27,000. Uh, will, this will, you know, totally wipe out uh, debt for those, for about 30% of, of, of those who owe. Uh, the other 70% will still end up with, with some debt. 
And there's a, a huge disparity with regard to the black and Hispanic communities uh, that that uh, uh, 37,000 average uh, owed is more than the median income for for African-Americans. And so and so it, it still leaves them with more debt than they are able to pay. Um, given given their low income, so so those who are on low income uh, will will get ten thousand, but but it's you're being left with with twenty seven thousand, which is still uh, a quite a substantial burden. And when I read uh, one of the things th- remarks that uh, President Biden said was, "All this means people can finally crawl out from under the mountain, that mountain of debt, to get on top of their rent and utilities. The people who have a mountain of debt, it ain't ten thousand dollars. He's implying that ten thousand dollars is a mountain of debt. I know someone who graduated. I think she's a doctor. Two hundred eighty, two hundred eighty thousand. Well, I'm glad you said that because I was just looking up what's the average." salary for an entry-level doctor in the United States, it's 206907 That's the median. And she owed, last I talked to her, 280000 is what she owed. And the next thing I was going to look at is what do attorneys make? So the, the point is, for those that have a, acquired medical school, well, I'll just say professional school debt, this doesn't help them much, Dr. Tahid. It doesn't help them much. And, and you know, there are people who are saying, well, they're, they're already making a lot of money. But but the point of, of having persons going to medical school, people might disagree about the lawyers, but going to medical school is they provide a tremendous service to the population. And uh, we, we, we don't need fewer doctors. We, we need more doctors. Uh, we, we, you know, if, as, as, as health care expands, if we don't have more health care providers, then the cost of health care goes up. So, so we need more doctors. We need uh, uh, it, we need uh, persons going to medical school to be able to go to medical school and end up with less debt, not more debt. This doesn't this doesn't help them. This doesn't help persons in the economy in general who have gone to school and gotten degrees that are very productive. And, and also, if I'm a if I'm a physician, I've incurred an awful lot of debt to be able to provide that service. So if my median income is $206,000 and I have incurred $175,000 in debt to make that money, you're the economist. Talk to me about time value of money and, and return on investment. Well, well, these, these, uh, in, these uh, loans, of course, accrue interest. They continue to accrue interest. And uh, in in many cases, the uh, the uh, interest that has been accrued as uh, on these twenty year debts ends up being multiple times the original uh, borrowing, and uh, that's not just for for persons with with high income. That that's that's in general, particularly for persons with low incomes. And so and so, you know, the the canceling of, of ten thousand dollars is not enough. $50,000 would have certainly wiped out uh, most of that debt uh, for, for low-income uh, borrowers, but it would also help those who, who uh, went to school to get highly valued and highly uh, important skills that they're uh, using to serve the public. You know, uh, Dr. Tohita, I also think to some extent this serves to benefit the ruling elite. Let me tell you why. This is the wrong conversation 
You know, if you have a friend that's an alcoholic and you go grab that bottle out of their hand on a given Friday night, they're still an alcoholic. That's just one bottle of whiskey that's gone. But they shall get another one and drink that one, too, and continue for their life to spiral out of control. $10,000, fine. The conversation should be about why we have a system when debt is a claim on future earnings, where these young people come out of college and these banks have a claim on their future earnings for the next 30 years. This 10000 means nothing because there's all of these kids walking out of school right now. There's plenty more new $10,000 coming out. So instead of talking about the system, systemic problem that we have that hurts our country in so many ways. Instead, they're going to be celebrating like they address the problem when they just grab one bottle of liquor out of an alcoholic's mouth and they didn't do anything to address the alcoholism. You're correct. I mean, part of the systemic problem is the cost of education, which has skyrocketed much, much faster than the, than the rate of inflation. Even the current rate of inflation is, is dwarfed by the increase in, in, in college tuition. Uh, that's happened since the since the 1980s, and uh, so uh, it, yeah, not getting a, a hold uh, on college tuition increases means that if there's ever any future debt cancellation, it'll it'll absolutely need to be bigger uh, uh, than this one, uh, else, else it'll dwarf in comparison. Um, we, we should we 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 should look at education as an investment, as all industrialized and many. Developing countries do. Education is not simply to benefit the person who's getting the education who will go out and get a job, but it is an investment in the in the in the future of the country. It's no different than buying a, a drill press or or uh, some other kind of productive entity. It allows people to to become more productive so they can serve others in that process. So education is an investment. It should not be a cost to to persons who are going to contribute. And evidence of what it is you've just said with the country would be, let me see if I can find one quickly. Oh, China. <laughs> China, or as Donald Trump would say, China uh, is the is the perfect example of what it is that you've said. Now, talk about the impact of this debt forgiveness or uh, forbearance or um, delay in payment on inflation, because I've heard some what I think utterly foolish Republican Congress members say this debt relief or forbearance is going to have a dramatic negative impact on inflation. A, a study done by a number of my colleagues a couple of years ago uh, the, the name of the study was Macroeconomic Effects of Student Debt Cancellation, comes to a couple of conclusions. One of them is that there is very little inflationary impact from canceling all student debt, 100% of it. Um, I, I'm going to trust that study more than I'm going to trust mm -hmm. some even uh, politically-minded um, uh, economist who is trying to get in, into the news to sway public opinion because they work for finance, and so yeah, and 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 so there's there's not only is there very little inflationary effect, there is a uh, uh, an increase on GDP mm -hmm. that will occur. Interest rates are are not expected to rise very much because there's no reason for them to to go up, uh, not changing inflation rates, 
and it doesn't add to the deficit. We're, we're talking about money that's going somewhere. If someone has to pay a, um, a, a loan now, well, that, that moves into the economy. When it goes somewhere else, it's not more money moving into the economy. It's the same amount of money moving into the economy. It just has a better effect. Instead of going to Wall Street and then going out in dividends or, or stock buybacks, it's going to, to um, allow persons to purchase housing and, uh, and, and automobiles. Now, we do have a supply chain crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a supply crisis that, ha- that is the ultimate basis for our current inflation. And if we don't do something on that, then, then uh, we, we can't address this current inflation. Actually helping people to go to school, to go out into the world, to become more productive, actually increases supply. After $1.9 trillion giveaway to the rich, Mitch McConnell calls debt relief for working class a slap in the face. Five years after McConnell aggressively pushed a $1.9 trillion tax cut package that disproportionately benefited corporations and the wealthiest Americans, progressives today were uninterested in his complaints about Biden's cancellation of some student debt for working Americans. Uh, uh, a slap in the face for billionaires, which they probably need to be slapped in the face, metaphorically, of course. We don't endorse yeah, violence. Yeah, I, well, I, I interpreted that as a slap in the face for, for the working class. Should I should I not interpret it that way? Oh, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. you're right. And so, and, so, and so Mitch McConnell has moved to the left of Joe Biden in, in this. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing. But then I, I think Mitch McConnell sees the, the frustration in the American people. And he, he has no particular um, uh, uh, position that he wants to hold. It's whatever is going to give an advantage to Republicans. And so he's going to stir up that, that, uh, that dissatisfaction with this minuscule uh, uh, $10,000. And uh, the, the Democrats have set themselves up for that. Uh, one of the things that we should, should remember in this whole process is that it was Joe Biden who set a lot of this in motion. And uh, there was the um, uh, 1976 Higher Education Act, which made um, uh, bankruptcy possi- uh, possibilities for student debt holders. Uh, it, it removed that, that possibility. And so while corporations and Trumps could get bankruptcy um, over and over again if they were unable to pay their debts, a student loan could not be forgiven. And that goes back to Joe Biden. Well... Let me say, as always, Dr. Linwood Tahid, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. We greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you, sir. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. NATO's chief admits Europe will pay price for supporting Ukraine. Jen Stoltenberg said providing military assistance to Kiev was not easy. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's an American citizen living in Crimea, Regis Tremblay. 
As always, Regis, welcome back. Thank you. It's always great to be with you. Quote, what we are seeing is unprecedented support from NATO's European allies, Germany, Canada, the United States, and many other countries around the world. I took part in President Zelensky's Crimea platform today, and the message sent there by all the leaders present was clear. We stand behind Ukraine and we will support it as long as it is necessary. This is the message from the NATO allies. I'm not saying it's easy. It requires hard work. I'm committed to working with other alliance leaders in Europe and North America to ensure that we continue to secure support. This is according to Jens Stoltenberg. Your thoughts, Regis Tremblay. Well, I just read something today. I'm not sure if it was the Washington Post or which U.S. paper that the sanctions on Russia were not affecting the economy in any significant way. However, the blowback from the United States and its NATO European partners has been overwhelming. Uh, Very strict austerity measures are being imposed. Uh, People are told not to take showers, but to use a washcloth to bathe themselves. People are already being told to not turn on the air conditioning. Uh, There are are plants and companies in Germany, the economic manufacturing power engine for Europe, that are closing down or reducing dramatically operations and laying off people. And yet their leaders are saying, We stand behind Ukraine with another several hundred million dollar shipment of arms and money. And by the way, in the mainstream media, it was reported last week that 70 percent of these weapons and money being sent to Ukraine are not reaching the troops on the ground. Where is it going? Wow. The black market. The money's going into the pockets of of Zelensky, Kolomoisky, other oligarchs, and probably a handful of United States participants, such as the Biden family, Newland, and others. I'm going to say something that may be a little controversial. Um, If I'm in the global South, Africa, Latin America, might I add the countries that are not supporting the U.S., that are supporting um, Russia in the special military operation. After centuries of being mistreated and abused by the U.K. and France and these other uh, colonial powers, I'm probably not mad. If I'm in Africa or one of these countries that have had my countries overthrown, my, you know, et et cetera, I'm looking at it and and saying, well, now they're going to be the third world country. Now they're going to be hungry and starving. But they have been imposing that on us for centuries. And now it's their turn. And these idiots are doing it to doing it to themselves. Maybe it's karma. Now, that may be a little controversial, but I'm throwing it out there. Your thoughts, Regis. Yeah, no, I I don't think it's controversial at all. I think what's happening on a geopolitical scale is that the global South, Africa, and certainly South America, are throwing off 
the imperialism that has been imposed on them for a century at least. They, they are no longer afraid to speak out. They are aligning themselves not only with Russia, but with China. China is spending billions of dollars to develop parts of Africa. Russia is aligning itself with South America and with Cuba. And so it's not surprising to me at all that the members of the quote-unquote global south are now rallying around Russia and China. Here's another very interesting article. I want to get your thoughts on it. The UK's trust is ready to use nukes. Um, Liz Truss recently, they asked her about, you know, the the uh, using nuclear weapons. And, I mean, she had the usual deer in the headlights look. And she's basically, yes, I think that's an important duty of the prime minister, and I'm ready to do it. And my immediate reaction, um, Regis, was not that she was really saying that she was ready to use nukes, but she just— it's almost like when she was in Russia and they asked her, hey, would you um, recognize Russia as being in charge of this one particular area? And she said no. And then they said, but that already is actually part of Russia. She just had a prepared answer. So anything they ask her, are you ready to do X? And she's not real bright. She's just going to be like, yeah, that's part of my duty. I'm ready to do it. And it really didn't go through her poor, very thick little noggin what they were saying. Um, am I being unfair to Liz Trust, Regis? No, no, I, I don't think you're being unfair at all. I think the UK is is going from bad <laughs> bojo to worse with this Liz Trust. I mean, I think this is all campaign rhetoric. She's trying very hard to appear to be tough on Russia. But, you know, to be saying that she's ready to use nukes is absolutely insane and and disconnected from from reality. Um, not even the United States is making such blatant comments about being ready to use nukes, although they do have a very well-established first strike uh, policy against Russia. But what is happening in, 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 in the UK right now is really very sad. You know, their economy has fallen apart. They're talking about closing down all the British pubs because of this conflict, because of this backlash on, on sanctioning Russia. Um, is sooner or later, one has to hope that the English people have centuries of experience and hopefully a little bit of common sense left that they will not buy this. Unfortunately, like the United States and much of the rest of the world, the populations have no say in their governments that have been captured and dominated by powerful moneyed sources. She pledged to raise military spending by 3% of GDP in a country, as you just indicated, economy is, is in the tank. And also... Both Truss and Sunak, they are both touting the U.S. narrative, blame Russia for the Ukraine 
and raise military spending. So how how dangerous, not in terms of Liz Trust, but just in terms of candidates vying for positions in the West, is how dangerous is it for them to, even in the face of all of the evidence that it's wrong, parroting the Western slash U.S. narrative? Well, I, I don't think it makes a really a whole lot of difference because these people in the West, across Europe, and certainly those people in the United States government don't have much of a say at all in what the strategy is in taking down Russia. There are operatives. There were powerful people. There are globalists. There's the military-industrial complex that are the ones who determine what the strategy is going forward. The people in government are nothing but sock puppets for these people. And so I think it's just campaign rhetoric, and I think we're going to see more of it in the United States in the run-up to the election. And, you know, you see this, uh, the, uh, this the, the, uh, a number of U.K. diplomats have been traveling around European capitals to try to convince European leaders not to cut aid, even though the prices are soaring. The U.K. is falling apart. What we see is this, and this is the bottom line, I think. The people who are running around saying, you know, keep doing this, the Liz Trusses of the world, et cetera, they're not going to be hurt. They're going to be eating the finest food, riding in the finest cars. They're going to be living great. They are condemning the masses to absolute misery, to third world misery, and they're trying to continually give them false information so they'll accept this misery, and there ain't going to be no coming back for it. They're killing Europe, and Europe is not coming back, uh, Regis. Well, I, I absolutely ag- agree with you. Uh, Europe has crashed the Rubicon, uh, crossed the U- Rubicon, and I think the United States has as well. I don't believe there's any coming back economically, politically, or militarily in the collective West. I think their day is done. What we're looking at And what China and Russia have been telegraphing to the world for the last few months is that they are moving towards a new world order, not the WEF, not the Klaus Schwab, not the Davos new world order, but a new world order based on multipolarity, on the sovereignty of every nation in the planet, with the strict observance of international law and the principles of the United Nations Charter. So it's, it's the day is over for imperialism and for the Western domination of the planet. And how is the assassination of uh, Daria Dugina uh, playing in Crimea? Well, everybody's talking about it. It's all over uh, the Russian media. Um, my opinion on what is happening and what will continue to happen is that there are many, many pro-Ukrainian people who are living in Russia. Over two million people have been accept refugees from the war in Ukraine have been accepted into Russia and Crimea. There are many people in Crimea, for example, who are 
considering themselves as Ukrainian. They were not in favor of Crimea returning to the Russian Federation. These people have been pretty much quiet. I think what we are going to see in the future is more of these types of domestic terrorist acts in the Russian Federation, on the mainland, and in Crimea. There are a minority of people here who are very pro-Ukrainian and anti-Russian, and it's very easy for them to be trained and equipped Mm -hmm. to execute these acts of terrorism. Regis Tremblay, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, as always. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. U.S. hits Iran-linked targets in Syria in response to drone attacks. The U.S. military said it conducted airstrikes in Syria yesterday, targeting infrastructure used by groups with ties to Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. The airstrikes in the eastern province of Dire al-Zur are carried out at President Biden's direction after U.S. forces reported an attack by drone aircraft, one after their remote outposts, I'm sorry, on one of their remote outposts last week. For insight into this and to some other issues, let's turn to our next guest. He's a podcaster and host of The Left is Dead, James Carey. As always, James, welcome back. Always a pleasure. So today's strikes were necessary to protect and defend U.S. personnel, according to Colonel Joe Husino, uh, the communications director of CENTCOM. Uh, the United States does not seek, con- I found this almost laughable, the United States does not seek conflict, but will continue to take necessary measures to protect and defend our people. A couple of things. One, the U.S. doesn't seek conflict. Well, what are they doing there in the first place other than seeking conflict? And this report of ties to Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, I ask this because I honestly don't know the answer. This is not a rhetorical question. What's the what's the connection? What does that mean? Because if they wanted, they, they can pin this almost on anybody they want to and say that, they have ties to to the IRGC. Am I off here, James Carey? No, I mean, yeah, the first the line that we don't go seeking conflict made me stop too. Um I had to pause at that one because I thought I read it wrong. Because <laughs> we're talking about occupying uh, part of a country illegally <laughs> as its allies continue to try to push us out. So I don't understand where that came from. But yeah, I think that the, the terrorism label, you know, just gets applied loosely. The IRGC is a very convenient uh, scapegoat. It gives. It's the bigger target. Obviously, we failed to overthrow the government in Syria, and now you see. You know, Iran has obviously always been a target, and you see that the, the rhetoric is still ramped up against them in Syria because the fight over Assad and I think Russia's backing of the Assad government has given the U.S. pause, and they're like, "Well, this is over," but Iran is still a target. 
Iran maintains a pretty independent foreign policy of its own. Um, so, yeah, I think anything that can be connected to them can be called terrorism. You can call them sending uh, money to civil civil organizations in Palestine terrorism, if you want. Exactly. You know? So, yeah, everything kind of can be called terrorism, and that's how it's always been. But, again, there's never any question, right? I mean, there's never any – how do we – these guys are – these fighters were supposedly from Afghanistan. How do we know the drone attack was from Iran? According to the Washington Post article, the Islamic State is still a threat in eastern Syria. So how do I know it was from Iran or any connected group? And what they'll call Iranian connections has always been spurious. Look at Yemen, you know? Yeah. Um, and the other thing, I mean, when you look at this, number one, what the heck is the U.S. doing in Syria, period? We have we've not been invited there. We have no legal right to be there under international law. So rules based order. Yeah. Oh, I forgot about that. So we're illegally occupying a country while we say we're all about the sovereignty and independence of countries and we're defending ourselves in a country. That's like me, like robbing a bank, killing one of the people who are trying to stop me from robbing a bank and then claiming self-defense. It ain't self-defense. Actually, it's felony murder under the, it's first degree murder under the felony murder doctrine because it's during the, the, the during the commission of a felony. So I would argue that under the felony murder doctrine, this is first degree murder because we're already committing an international crime by uh, occupying Syria illegally. Your thoughts, James? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's something that's missed out on is, you know, what are we doing there? Or why are we there has never really been questioned. But um, you see articles kind of refer to it as, oh, there's a couple hundred special for Like, I don't, you know, like it makes a difference. Uh, a lot of, you know, critics of Obama said he didn't do enough in Syria, not sending people in. But you see that this is how the U.S. is just more refusal to lose. You know, we can't have anything we've lost completely, whether it's sanctioning c countries or leaving special forces behind to do God knows what, um, make some type of, you know, new gladio operation or whatever. So, so we have these leave behinds, but I mean, th these are sort of the empire can never admit it's lost anything. Right. I mean, if it does, and obviously people have know it does, it lost Iraq, it lost Afghanistan, but they just don't want to give that image. That's why there's still troops in Iraq. Now, you know, we can't give an image that we've lost there, even though there is no, what is the state admission of the war in Iraq at this point? Or the state admission of, in northern Syria is supposedly just taking out ISIS, which, you know, I don't I haven't heard any threats from in a year or so more. Moving uh, to the country next door, U.S. warns Turkey's leading business group of Russia sanctions risk. The association received a letter from U.S. Treasury warning it against establishing ties with sanctioned Russian Entities, Turkey's leading business association said it received a letter from U.S. Deputy Treasury Secretary Wally Adimo warning of possible sanctions if companies established relations with sanctioned Russian entities and individuals. Your thoughts, Mr. Kerry? Yeah, I think this is just sort of um, more, it's more conflict over Turkey. Turkey wants to sort of play the middle of, you know, the Western Bloc and the Eastern Bloc, and they've done so pretty well. Um, you see in Ukraine, They've negotiated the, re, you know, the grain exports. They've negotiated uh, reconstruction after the war. Um, Turkey's looking for other markets because I will say that the West has never treated Turkey like a full partner. They were never fully integrated into the West, whether they were, they may consider themselves Europeans or did at some point, but uh, the governments anyway, but they were never really fully integrated into Europe or any Western 
system like, say, the European Union or, the, you know, any type of fair trade with the U.S. or the EU. So the fact is that why not go east? It's closer. They actually pay. You know, they provide real business. Uh, Russia is responsible for a lot of Turkey's imports now, a lot of the natural gas, tourism, citizenships apparently skyrocketing. Um, I think you see Turkey kind of – they're just flexing their muscles that, that, that nothing can be done because they're so – there's such a critical hinge point of the NATO structure with their military that I think they're just flexing again because we've tried to sanction them before. We've, we have sanctioned them. I look at the S-400 that are kicked out of the F-35 project. So I, I, Turkey knows that there's not much we can do. I mean, we can try to sanction their business, but they busted sanctions before. They're probably doing it right now. I mean, I don't see why they wouldn't be because they get away with it every time. They've done it with Iran. They've done it with Venezuela. And now they're going to do it with Russia. And there's not much the U.S. can do to stop them, and if you threaten to make their economy worse, that's not really a threat because it can't get much worse. Well, the other thing uh, I think, James, is that this demonstrates something, that there is a uh, an issue wherein the United States is trying to project its power and it's trying to, uh, you know, affect uh, its foreign policy, which the neocons feel benefits them. But if you look at the other countries in NATO, it hurts them. It's hurting all these countries in the in the EU. It's hurting all these countries. And, and Turkey's basically saying, nah, we're looking at what's happening in the UK. We're looking at what's happening in Germany. We already got our problems. We're not going to make it worse on ourselves. So I mean, for all of his faults, Erdogan is a more reasonable, uh, pragmatic leader than the rest of these idiots in the EU. And he's basically saying, yeah, I got problems and I'm not willing to make them worse. And, you know, if you guys are going to come after me, you're going to have to do it. But I'm not going to sacrifice what's left of my economy now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he faces re-election next year. This is a big time for him. I don't know whether he'll cheat or not. But uh, yeah, the thing is that Again, never treated as an equal European partner. So why should he go along with you know the sanctions on Russia? And as you said, there's you got Germany looking at rationing gas, and the UK shutting off you know gas for certain periods and rationing it out to critical businesses. During they already have plans for this. Russia's cutting the gas supply even they've cut it even more. Um, Turkey has no reason to join in on that because what's going to prop them up? You know what Western country is going to help them make it through a complete probably economic depression at this point. Be, you know, there's no Western country that's going to willingly give up that much capital to help out Turkey. So I think that you're seeing Turkey just really do what, yeah, the EU should have done. They're going to be surprised when they get a bunch of populist leaders in the EU in a year or a couple of years, you know, because there's no gas. But Turkey has done what, hey, they got to live. And again, the economy's already been spiraling. There's been no assistance from the U.S. or Western powers in that. So... In this story about the threat of sanctions, the news comes as Turkey doubled its imports of Russian oil this year. Turkey increased oil imports from uh, beyond 200,000 barrels per year. So isn't this happening while the United States is stealing oil from Syria and stealing wheat from Syria? Yeah, you'd think they'd just put it right over the border, right? But uh, the U.S. is just looking to, again, Turkey's another Turkey's a partner that has to be put in line. We don't want to give them the things that we have. Um, they can go right through, but this is the complicated world trade system we live in, right, where things are assembled in 18 different countries and then finally assembled in the – you're put in a box in the U.S., and it's called made in the U.S. So Turkey just gets kind of kicked out of the supply chain. They're not really a, an economic rival. They're an economic necessity for us, uh, even though militarily they are and strategically they are. 
we don't treat them as an economic partner. And like I said, if the EU had done better at integrating Turkey as as a semi-member state even, there wouldn't be this conflict. But the fact is that Turkey, even under leadership before Erdogan, has kind of always been spurned like this. And you're seeing a natural reaction to it. And the only choice they have is, you know, go with these other countries because they're not going to make demands of them. They're not going to tell them what to do internally. We already know that. We see that with China and a lot of other countries that have chosen to take Chinese aid over U.S. aid. Turkey can be the same thing. Russia's never going to tell them, you know, we want to monitor your elections. We want this guy gone. Uh, There's no other alternative. But the West has treated Turkey like dirt for a long time. So, I mean, this is a logical outcome. Also, uh, Israel's assault on um, Palestinian NGOs is shutting off access to the international community. And what's interesting is we also um, reported earlier in the week that the CIA, of all places, the CIA has done an investigation and they've found that these Palestinian NGOs aren't doing anything wrong, that Israel's allegations are against them. And it certainly appears that they this is just another illicit assault on on, on the Palestinians and, and, and their movement for some level of independence and justice. Your thoughts? Yeah, it's. I think it's that, and it's both. Um, it's a method to try and keep the peace between, say, the Arab states that were part of the uh, what the, the accords with Israel over the last, you know, with Jared Kushner and everything. These deals worked out with Israel were contingent on, say, Saudi Arabia and countries like that dropping support for the Palestinians. But money's continued to flow in from other countries through these NGOs, and Israel is clearly looking to do anything they can to silence any pro-Palestinian voice both abroad and at home, uh, we've seen them spend a ton of money on boring middle-of-the-road Democrats here to keep out anyone who has even a slight criticism of Israel from taking office. So I think that you're seeing that further, you know, go further inside Israel. They have to quiet every voice that talks about Palestinian rights, uh, the occupation, the violence inflicted against Palestinians. Those things have to be silenced. And to Israel, that's terrorism. But to us, you know, even if even the CIA says you're not doing terrorism, you're probably not doing terrorism. And we have just about a minute and a half left. And how much of this is really just empty rhetoric from the United States? Because this piece says European governments, the U.N. and U.S. have said they will maintain relationships with these organizations. But that's not the issue. The issue is that Israeli forces are raiding these offices domestically and that they are they are shooting people domestically. And the United States isn't saying a damn thing. Yeah, exactly. That's that's what I mean. I think they're trying to cut off any channel for Palestinian voices, and they've cut it off through the Democratic Party. Even there's no like real criticism there. Obviously, the Republican Party has no criticism of Israel. Um, that type of criticism isn't allowed on major television. You know, major network television here. At least it's not given a full coverage like anything else that happens here, like Trump going golfing or whatever. Um, so. I think that you see Israel, they, they've done it here, they're doing it at home. This is just an attempt to stifle any critical voice because they have to, they know as human rights get worse all around the world, they're also going to be a focus because they've been abusing them for a long time. So I think you see things like, say, the Black Lives Matter movement inside the U.S. also addressing Palestine and Israel. They don't have, they can't have that. You know, the progressive wing of any type of human rights movement has to be shut down and any type of civil society for Palestinians has to be shut down. And that's the only way that Israel can make sure they continue to dominate the narrative about Palestine. James Carey, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. All right. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. 
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Black Agenda has a piece entitled Letter from Republic of Mali to UN on French Aggression and Support for Terrorism in Region. The government of Mali has accused France of numerous violations of its airspace and has requested that the United Nations Security Council investigate. French forces may have left Mali, but the colonizer hasn't changed the way it relates to African nations. For insight into this and to other issues, we turn to our next guest. He holds the John Jay and Rebecca Moore's Chair of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's one of the most prolific writers of our time. His latest book is entitled The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery, Jim Crow, and the Roots of American Fascism. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, sir, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. Before we get to Mali, uh, let's talk about what's going on in Angola. Well, it's interesting that today as we speak, elections are taking place in Angola, Southwest Africa, And there are a number of reasons why the U.S. audience should pay attention to these elections. The ruling popular movement for the liberation of of Angola, MPLA Party, has been in power since independence since 1975. However, the opposition, so-called UNITA Party, U-N-I-T-A, was during the Cold War a favorite of the Republican right. Their leader, Jonas Zavimbi, who only passed away a few decades ago, used to be in the Oval Office repeatedly conferring with Ronald Wilson Reagan and other leading Republicans. Recall that it was in 1975 that as Portugal, the NATO ally of the United States, which had been a colonizing power in Angola since the 16th century, was decomposing rapidly because there had been a revolution in Portugal bringing the left to power in April 1974. So what happens is that the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency, in collaboration with the apartheid authorities and then apartheid South Africa, collaborated to try to prevent the MPLA from coming to power. But what happens is that the Cuban military, under the leadership of President Fidel Castro Ruz, uh, intervenes in a muscular fashion, of course, by the socialist camp led by the then Soviet Union, which then turns the tide against the UNITA and their CIA and apartheid collaborators and outrages and enrages Washington, which decides that the way to reverse the tides of history is to somehow destabilize the then Soviet Union, which would then obviously hamper the ability in the future of Cubans to be transported across the Atlantic to Africa to help to fight against the oppressors. Now, of course, this is detailed, as you know, in my book, White Supremacy Confronted. But let me say just one more or one or two other points which is that the black American audience have paid very close attention to this question of the election in Angola because the Angola, the nation of Angola supplied during the battle days of the African slave trade about 30 percent 
of the enslaved Africans transported across the Atlantic and of the black population listening to you right now, possibly 30 percent or more are actually of Angolan descent. Uh, You know that in Louisiana, the prison there is called Angola State Prison, a reflection of the fact that black people who were brought to Louisiana were oftentimes Angolan and oftentimes wound up in jail, as still happens today. And so what's going to be interesting about this election in Angola today is whether or not the UNITA, which has not broken its ties with U.S. imperialism, will be able to soar back into influence, if not power, because the MPLA party, with the weakening of the socialist camp, uh, that allowed a rather unique form of class relations to develop. Indeed, the second richest black woman on earth after Oprah Winfrey happens to be the daughter of the late Angolan president, Jose Eduardo Dos Santos. And there is a lot of discontent in Angola because of these skewed class relations. But it's apparent to me, at least, that a victory of UNITA would be a victory for U.S. imperialism. In fact, it would be a blow to Angola's neighbors because even today, the parties of liberation, for the most part, are still in power. Speaking of SWAPO in Namibia, uh, ZANU in Zimbabwe, ANC in South Africa, the uh, other parties uh, of the region as well. And so these parties all have conflicting and conflicted relations with Washington, which is seeking by means mostly foul to get rid of all of them. And for those who may be deluded to think that getting rid of these parties will improve the life chances of black people in that part of Africa, uh, I, I don't think so. In fact, it'll be a great leap backward. Let me ask you this, because the um, the last polls that I saw had um, MPLA at 59 percent and UNITA at like 33 percent. Now, this was, you know, a little bit ago, some some weeks back, but it, it, it looked to be a blowout. If, in fact, UNITA, whatever they are, do win, would we be wrong in suspecting foul play? Well, It's difficult to say because, on the one hand, you have a fairly well-respected electoral commission, which the United States might seek to emulate, given the rather chaotic and shambolic elections that take place in this country. And we should have results, I would think, within two weeks, uh, given the fact that the MPLA uh, still has control over the levers of power, including the vast oil wealth. Uh, which is oftentimes traded to the People's Republic of China, uh, not to mention uh, control over telecommunications media, uh, it would be very difficult for UNITA by foul play to help to erode, to serve to erode that kind of advantage. Uh, But with Washington being the Bigfoot in that part of Africa, you never can be too sure. What about the framing of this? I'm I'm looking at a uh, piece from CNBC. Russia's influence is at risk in the southern African nation of Angola as voters head to the polls. Russia's long-held ties with the southern African nation could be in jeopardy 
as the Moscow-friendly government faces its toughest electoral test. They talk about MPLA being that government, and then, however, the party faces what analysts believe to be its tightest election, and they talk about UNITA. Your thoughts on the framing of this in the context of a Russian interest? Well, that kind of news reportage, of course, reflects Cold War thinking, which should be a tell for many of us who pay attention. Uh, that is to say that despite the dissolution of the Soviet Union, the United States is still seeing itself as in some sort of ideological contestation, but not only with Moscow and in Be- with Be- Beijing. And I think that's one of the reasons, as suggested a moment or two ago, why they're still seeking to oust the parties of liberation, which are now the parties of power in Windhoek, in Luanda, uh, in Pretoria, in Harare, etc. However, I don't think that they'll be successful, but we won't know for a few weeks for sure. There's a letter from the Republic of Mali to the U.N. on French aggression and support for terrorism in the region. It's interesting because they've been um, in the process of tossing the French out recently, and they're doing some seriously pushing pushing back. Your thoughts? Well, France obviously deserves being pushed out of Mali. Uh, Recall that it exploited the African nation shamelessly uh, for decades. When Mali came to independence in the 1960s, some decades ago, French intelligence with its U.S. collaborators were responsible for the liquidation of Modibo Keita, the hero of Mali and equivalent of Patrice Lumumba in the Congo. Uh, This is not surprising for those of us who pay attention to uh, French imperialism and U.S. imperialism in that part of Africa. And I understand why the authorities in Bamako have been sorely disappointed with the performance of the French military, which, after all, were called into Mali in the aftermath of the U.S.-French-engineered overthrow of Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, which allowed tons of weapons to leak out of Libya into the hands of religious zealots, coincidentally enough, who then began to wreak havoc throughout Northern Africa in general, including Northwest Africa, which includes Mali. And that called, uh, that called, meant that the Bamako authorities called on the French to intervene. And despite uh, their reputation for wiping the floor with religious zealots, uh, they did not do so in Mali, which has led, of course, to these very bad relations between Bamako and Paris as we speak. You have the foreign minister of Mali writing this letter to the United Nations Council, and he is charging France with violating their airspace, particularly those operated by French forces. He says that in addition to acts of indiscipline characterized by refusal to comply with the instructions of air traffic control, they're turning off their their transponders. Talk about why France is doing this in Mali now? I think that France would like to keep a foothold in that part of Africa. It's a part of Africa that has vast mineral wealth, vast natural resources, in light of the bruised relations between France and its neighbor to the east, speaking of Russia, which has similar resources. France and other North Atlantic countries are now looking to Africa to make up for the shortfall 
And I hope that Bamako also mentioned in their communication with the United Nations authorities that just a month or so ago, you had EU forces landing in Bamako without the authorization of the Bamako authorities. This was a kind of piratical neocolonialism that I thought had disappeared. Obviously, I was wrong. Certainly, the Bamako authorities have cozied up to Moscow. The foreign minister and other uh, leaders have been making a regular stop in Russia in recent weeks and months. And that also uh, has uh, Washington and Paris upset. So I trust and I hope that the Bamako authorities have a kind of coup insurance, because certainly that's the alternative that the United States and France will be pursuing sooner rather than later. Yeah, we see um, a lot of advancement uh, for ind- independent and revolutionary movements in 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 South America, in Latin America, Central America, etc. Of course, they don't have Africom there. We got about two minutes. Your comparison, do you think? Do you think um, Africa will be able to move in that direction also? Well, I would say this. I would say the productive forces in South America are more developed than they are at least in Brazil and Argentina in particular, than in the leading countries uh, of Africa. And that development acts as a kind of shield that helps to fend off the kind of militaristic penetration of which uh, AFRICOM is a specialist. Uh, We know that in recent days and weeks, AFRICOM, for example, has been steadily bombing uh, Somalia, And that has led to the uh, militant zealots in Somalia striking back against the government. However, uh, I'm happy to say that uh, these elections, not only in Angola, but also in Kenya, an election which is still being sorted out in East Africa, is a signal that there is a kind of stability that is emerging in Africa that too will act as a shield helping to fend off the thrust and the lances of the North Atlantic imperialists. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Lula promises Venezuela, quote, respect, end quote, as presidential campaign begins in Brazil. The leftist presidential candidate called Juan Guaido an imposter. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a peace activist and author of Blood on Our Hands, The American Invasion of Iraq. Nick Davies, as always, Nick, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So former Brazilian President Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva 
rejected the recognition of opposition figure Juan Guaido as president of Venezuela, calling him an imposter and said he would instead honor the self-determination of the Venezuelan people. Lula who, Lula, who currently leads election polls as he seeks a return to the presidency, told a gathering of international media that Brazil had an extraordinary relationship with Venezuela during his earlier two terms that ran from 2003 to 2010. Uh, Nick, I'm always interested in paying attention to not what is said, where it's said, and when it's said. And for Lula to be talking to international media, calling Guaido an imposter, that to me is a very direct rejection of American foreign policy. Absolutely. It, it certainly is. And, um, and you know, had similar uh, similar things from uh, AMLO, President Lopez Obrador in Mexico, and uh, we have uh, Colombia and Venezuela exchanging ambassadors. And really, this is like the story of the emperor's new clothes. I mean, everybody. Everybody <laughs> really know, knew all along that Juan Guaido was an imposter. That's a perfect word. I should. I wish I'd thought of that one myself. But mm-hmm. um, and here is Lula, who we have missed for all these years <laughs> since he was, you know, in this absolutely corrupt. Uh, process replaced in Brazil by by Bolsonaro, who is who is really just a, a fascist dictator, really. Um, and um, so here, you know, we have the prospect of real popular leadership again in Brazil, and Brazil taking its place. To remember when BRICS was a you know, was a thing. Um, and uh, people were talking about BRICS. That's Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, you know, being the new centers for growth in the world. And, 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 um, and really the um, the, the 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 leadership, the new leadership of this multipolar world, and so here we have Lula stepping up, stepping into the limelight again, and um, calling it like it is, and offering real leadership to uh, Latin America. I also think, and this is important, and one of the things we're seeing, you know, Joe Biden said there's a division between autocracies and democracies. When I look at what's happening in in, in in Germany, when I look at what's happening in the Baltic states, in the UK economically, these people are living, you know, going through living hell, basically, right? And we see other African, Latin American, et cetera, countries saying, you know, we're going to stand up for our people. We need food. We need wheat. We need energy. We're not buying into that. So what I see with Lula is this difference between these countries that go along with the American, with the U.S. empire and harm their own people and their own population and wipe out their own economies, as opposed to these people in so-called third world developing countries, et cetera, that are actually being pragmatic and looking out for the interests of their citizens. Nick. Absolutely. 
and I and Latin Latin America in particular is is an inspiration because um, you, you know this is after twenty thirty even fifty years of of, of the U.S. Uh, trampling on the the democratic aspirations of of people in Latin America, you know, replacing popular leaders with coups in country after country, uh, you know, working with the militaries in all those countries, including Brazil. Uh, for decades, and um, and it seemed it seemed for a while there in these last ten years that the the so-called pink tide had actually been rolled back, and if anything, it was rolled back most of all by Barack Obama, um, you know, putting a putting a friendly face on American imperialism, uh, you know, which was more persuasive to a lot of people than all of the, all of the iron fist. Um, but so, yes, we've had these right wing governments in, uh, Colombia, in Brazil, um, for a while there with, uh, Macri in Argentina, uh, we've had the coup in Honduras uh, in 2009, um, and and and. But what has happened in all these countries is that the people the people have have rejected these pro-American right-wing leaders, and even in Colombia, which has never had a, a true re, a real leftist government before um they finally finally have 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 uh <clears throat> dispelled the you, you know just the, the the propaganda that that has created fear to to tell them that they the that they cannot have a better world they cannot have uh, a fairer society and they cannot have an end to the violence of death squads and and military military dictators and um the people of latin america have have risen up with inspiration from cuba and bolivia uh and you know the 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 leftist leaders who who have who have stood up who have rejected um the the appeal of of um rejected the fear rejected the fear that makes their has made their colleagues go along like like those leaders you're talking about in Europe just going along to get along with the US and and really ending up ending up isolated so now we have latin america coming together again around real leaders real real leaders of the people real democratic leaders actually and socialist leaders who will do what is right for their people and this is this for for americans who who look at our political landscape here and are gripped with despair at the complete uh, complete failure to to actually um you know implement real democracy or mm-hmm. socialism um you know we can take a look at our neighbors to the south and draw just huge inspiration because they 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 have faced uh they have faced the same kind of repression 
that that we have, or even worse in some cases, and and um, and they have come through, and they are once again standing up for themselves, for their rights, and and for and with the the, the belief that they can build fairer societies um, in their in their countries and in in this part of the world. So I've asked this question a number of times. And with Garland raising the point about China, for example, not taking the bait, what is the United States to do amidst all of these elections, amidst all of these turnarounds? And as I tend to say, we know that imperial global hegemons do not go gentle into that good night. But with these countries not taking the military bait, what is the United States to do? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I, I think um, the, the, the people of the United States have a very clear path, which is to 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 keep standing up for our rights, to keep to to actually believe, to to follow that inspiration that we get from our neighbors to the south, and believe that the same is possible here. And yes, we are up against. Uh, a hegemon, but it's a but it's a fading hegemon. It's it will, and if the American people can just wise up a little bit and recognize that we will be so much better off if we join our neighbors in 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 building fairer societies in 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 building societies that don't spend 60-70% of their disposable federal tax revenue on on weapons and war but actually spend that money to take care of our own people and to, and to make life better for all of us and i mean it is such a clear it is such a clear choice we face and when whenever politicians stand up to to let, let me let me jump in and give a quick example go ahead after the 1.9 trillion dollar giveaway to the rich mitch mcconnell calls joe biden's debt relief for working class a slap in the face that's a that's a that's an example of of what it is that you're saying. Your your, your yes, thoughts? Absolutely. We we got a minute. Yes, I mean, yep. Yeah, okay. Well, you know, we know what we need. We know what the solutions are. We need Medicare for all. We need to address the climate crisis, and this crazy corporate militarist agenda that this small minority of of wealthy. Uh, self-serving uh, <laughs> creeps has imposed on this country is um, is a travesty, and okay. um, you know, and it is not the best we can do. Nick Davies, as always, thank you so much for your time. We greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. I'll be back. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Black Agenda Report has a piece entitled, Liberals Love Liz Cheney. Liz Cheney for President. When liberals aren't rehabilitating war criminals like George W. Bush, they fall in love with right-wing Republicans like Liz Cheney. They stand for nothing and fall for anything. They are traitors to the millions of people who want to see progressive change in this country. What are we to make of this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He co-hosts the Confo Couch and AM Wake Up on Rockfin, Craig Jardula. Craig, welcome to The Critical Hour. Thanks for having me. So uh, Black Agenda, they they write, soon to be former Wyoming Congresswoman Liz Cheney is the flavor of the month for liberals. The cause of the underserved adulation is her condemnation of Donald Trump and his role in the January 6, 2021 Capitol riot. And as we know, as Margaret Kimberly wrote, progressives love the FBI, leftists embrace the Espionage Act. The fallout from the FBI search conducted at Trump's home shows the rank confusion spread by people who call themselves liberal, but who are dangerous, as dangerous as anyone on the right. Your thoughts, Craig Jardula. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, it doesn't surprise me that they picked uh, Liz Cheney for this role. It seems like they can, they constantly recycle uh, these neocons, these conservatives. And it really just, it, I think it tells you, uh, plain and simple, that, you know, the establishment is just one. You know, the Democrats and the Republicans on both sides of the aisle are part of the establishment, and they'll start to recycle uh, anybody who spits out their narrative. I, I, we saw them kind of join up, Liz Cheney, that is, and Seth Moulton in Congress when they uh, worked together to make sure that Rand Paul's bill would not would just be dead on arrival and wouldn't get passed so they can end the Afghan war. Uh, you know, and also, you know, there's also ties where you see Liz Cheney, uh, her husband. Uh, he actually works for a law firm that's defending Hunter Biden. So it really doesn't make a difference what side of the aisle they're on, you know, but uh, they have a knack of taking these neocons, recycling them, getting them out there and trying to get some, you know, some rah-rahs from those leftist crowds. You know, I also think, um, and this is the very dangerous thing, one of the things that's going on is these neoliberals, whatever you want to call them, they're trying to redefine ideology. You know, traditionally, the ideological left is about pushing back against the status quo. It's also about um, economic class, you know, things like that. And they want to redefine, oh, you're on the left if you agree with us on, you know, whether it's the, you know, LGBT issue or whether it's anti-Trump. Now, you can be Liz Cheney, who voted with Donald Trump 93% of the time as long as you voice opposition to Donald Trump. And it's a way, to me, to mislead the constituents who 88% of the Democratic Party are in favor of Medicare for all, but you mislead these people away from those foundational issues of economic class into crazy anti-Trumpism or whatever you can take them away to. And one thing, uh, Craig, before you respond, not only do you look at Liz Cheney, who voted with Donald Trump 93 percent of the time, she's just one person removed from her father. Yeah. <laughs> and, How about that? And, 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 and she's right in lockstep. 
with her dad. She's never, to my knowledge, come out and said, well, that was his thing. I'm playing my own game. She's right there with her dad. And that is as if not more frightening than Liz Cheney by herself. Go ahead, Craig. Well, that's a good reason why I never talk too much guff about Liz Cheney because she's so much like a father. She might shoot me in the face if I get out of line. So I, I tend to make sure that, I, you know, I stay in check. But I mean, listen, the, the Democrats, you know, the, the voters, they don't vote on policy. They don't vote at all. They don't even look at policy. In fact, they just look at the title and that pretty name and whatnot. They vote upon, you know, what's popular, what's a good tweet, what's out there, what's the narrative, what's the rhetoric. You know, all the surface level stuff, the stuff that is very easy, easy to move them emotionally. And, you know, and, and they, they team up for certain things. Uh, Liz is now pointing the phrase uh, election denier, right? That's the big thing. Now, now it, it, she's going to go against you if you're an election denier. And it goes right in line with what the Democrat establishment is pushing. So even though it, it really, it's really not about, you know, policy, it's just something they throw out there. That's how they move their base to left. And, they, you know, they ain't going to stop now uh, with their tweets and their rhetoric and their little bumper sticker uh, quotes. Leaked slides detail YouTube's Ukraine censorship. Posting screenshots from an internal training course reportedly cost a Polish contractor his job. A tutorial for YouTube's content moderators that emerged on social media yesterday shows that the Google-owned platform has labeled a number of critical positions on the conflict in Ukraine hateful or extreme and can censor or uh, demonetize creators on those grounds, while the parent company, Alphabet, has not confirmed or denied the screenshot's authenticity. Uh, this is just another element of, uh, of how dangerous uh, this censorship and how deep and, and kind of pro, th th how deep this censorship is running. Craig. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I, we had a guest on this morning that was in Ecuador, and she moved away from Cambodia uh, to escape some of the uh, the protocols uh, in Cambodia. And, and she also witnessed somebody posting something up on Facebook, getting arrested and thrown in jail for two years. You know, literally. Wow. We saw in Australia. I know, it's just mind-blowing. This is scary stuff, gentlemen. I mean, what they're doing right here, they're taking it to the next level. I mean, they're trying to label people information terrorists right now so they can do what they did like in Australia when they show up on your door. Hey, we saw a post that you might go out for this march or this organization. What's going on? This is scary, scary stuff right here. Well, and, and also, when you look at it, you know, you know, you know, a lot of information that's been coming out lately that, you know, Google, which owns YouTube, is hiring all of the ex-spooks, ex-CIA, ex-FBI, that these people who work for Google, Twitter, et cetera, are being trained. Uh, there's a great Mint Press article that we've covered this week where they're being trained at this London, King's London School of something or other, where the people that teach are all ex-NATO, et cetera. So we see this this kind of network of people that ends up working for these social media companies who are nothing more than operatives, whether it's for NATO, the military industrial complex, the CIA or whatever. And this is what we what we end up with. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, they're doing us one better, Garland. Even their whistleblowers are ex-CIA <laughs> trained, whatnot. We got a Twitter whistleblower that's going to be coming out uh, in a little bit. 
you know, and, and hey, listen, you got to tip your hat off to the deep state or the intelligence apparatus or whoever's pulling the strings out there. They're not leaving any of the bases untouched over here. I mean, to say our whistleblower comes and it's just like that. The was it the the uh, Facebook whistleblower? When what do they say? It's the narrative they're still trying to push. Their argument is they got to censor more. That Facebook isn't doing enough to censor. That you know we have to protect our children. So not only their employees of these big tech companies are part of the CIA or an extension of to make sure they get that message out there. O- Operation Mockingbird just rings in my head. But now their whistleblowers are ex spooks as well. Following along with this RT piece, according to the slides, the glorification promotion of the Z symbol associated with the Russian military is labeled hate and extreme. And it's interesting that that was posted because I remember in the Newsweek article about the event that Caleb hosted in Chicago, they made points about the Z symbol or people carrying flags uh, with the Z symbol on it at that event. They also go on to say, so is, say, so is saying that the conflict is to denazify the Ukrainian government, which is President Putin has said. <clears throat> Somehow, I guess denazification is a bad thing. Saying that Ukraine military is attacking. It is for these and, na- Nazis. It, it is for, yeah, it is if you're a Nazi. Uh, saying that Ukraine military is, a, is attacking its own people is considered problematic, ranging from harmful di- misinformation and moderate to harmful misinformation extreme if the powers that be decided amounts to promotion or glorification. So they really seem to have a problem speaking the truth, Craig. Well, the truth will will not really support their narrative. It won't justify the proxy wars that are the American people have to spend billions of tax dollars to spend. And I don't know if you guys got the memo, the uh, Russians now, the communists, the old school communists, those were the actual Nazis of the day. Uh, they were the fascists of sorts. You know, Dugan, Alexander Dugan, who just lost his daughter, uh, may she rest in peace. You know, what does our, our little independent media do? They are an extension of the mainstream media when they start pointing out that he was a fascist. He should never be celebrated, uh, blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, it's just, it, it's not news. It's propaganda. I mean, that's why. Shows like this are so important. Shows like mine, when we're when we're talking about these things, we know pretty. It's pretty obvious from some of the footage we've seen with our friends what the Ukrainian army or military or militias or Azov battalion Nazis what they do to their own people. They they saran wrap them to poles and flog them uh, in front of other citizens. I mean, you have to search out this stuff uh, because the mainstream media is doing a great job of suppressing it. Well, wait a minute. They're just doing what they can to hide all this information. Go ahead. In terms of what they do to their own people, well, what, what prompted Russia to intervene in Ukraine had to do with what the Ukrainians in the in the West have been doing to Ukrainians in the East since 2014. So yeah, yeah, yeah. which which technically is their own people, right? Right. Yeah, which is, that's it's my their point. Own government. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even though they were Russian speak ethnic speaking people, they were Ukrainians. They were Ukrainians, and we've been seeing this behavior since Victoria Noodleman or Noodleman, whatever you want to call us, when she was handing out cookies on the Maidan which led to this mass shelling and killing of over 14,000 deaths of Ukrainians in the Donbass. Yes. 
I, I can take you places, I'm sure Wilmer can too, right in Montgomery County where you go to all the stores over there on New Hampshire Avenue. And guess what? Everybody speaks Spanish. You can't speak Spanish. Ain't no point going in any of those stores or none of those businesses. And imagine if the U.S. suddenly said, if you speak Spanish— in the United States, you'll get a hundred dollars. That's literally what they did. But there you would literally been, get a ticket for speaking Russian. But there have been movements in the United States and not too far back yep. where where conservatives wanted to pass legislation making English the official language of the United States. Yes. So with and and that's the first step in getting to what it is you just let me ask you one point out one thing quickly Craig because you mentioned uh Alexander Dugan the narrative as we read it here is he was a Putin loyalist loyalist he was a Putin, he's a Putin strategist he's responsible for uh with promoting the narrative in in the Ukraine and from the sources that we have like Mark Sloboda and others they say he's never even talked to Vladimir Putin there's not a picture of him and Vladimir Putin, you know what I'm saying? Like he was distanced from the Kremlin years ago. They, they separated themselves uh, from them. But I'm sure there's got to be a, a Nixonism for saying, what's the saying about just if you throw something out there that ain't true, but if you constantly say it, it will stick. You know what I'm saying? There's got to be a Nixonism for that because that's all they are doing right now. And that's all they've been, been able to do because they are, they are banking on the fact that Americans are just consumed Consumed with trying to pay the bills, consumed with work. They ain't got time to look into this stuff. They'll just look at stuff that's on the surface. They still believe what's on the CNN news and the ticker that goes by when they just hit the talking points. That's what they're banking on because none of this stuff they say. And we live in this bubble. So we do have those sources. I speak to Mark Sloboda all the time. I've had him on the show more than any, any other guest. He's been our number one guest. And when you talk to people in those areas, in the regions that are actually there, you get the real truth. And that's what we're fighting against, this propaganda that they're throwing out there. And that, that's why it's important to have things like AM Wake Up and the Convo Couch on Rockfin and to have Rockfin. 30 seconds. Yeah. Uh, well, if my 30 seconds is saying to thank you, gentlemen, for letting me come on. And, yeah, that's what we're doing over there. We're just trying to get your information out there that's not on the mainstream media and talk about the stories that people don't want to talk about while presenting solutions. So join us Monday through Friday. 7 a.m. to 10 a.m. Las Vegas time on Rockfin. And, of course, the combo couch Monday, Wednesday, Friday from noon to 1. As we get out, I I just want to put a bow on this. I want to state the obvious. The reason that they're trying to draw the relationship between Dugan and Putin is to provide rationale for the assassination of his daughter. Oh, well, if he was hanging out with Vladimir Putin and they blow up his daughter, oh, well, that's just kind of that's the cost of doing business. I mean, that's the rationale that they're trying to use uh, when they make that posi- when they make those points. Craig uh, Jardula, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Wilma Garland, you guys have a blessed day. Thank you for having me on. You got it, man. Hey, folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 